What are you yearning for today? If you think what you really want more than anything else in life, what are you yearning for? Faith yearns. We've seen as we begin to move through the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews that faith is a certainty in the character of God and the promises of God. It's knowing that God is there, that God is at work, that He keeps His word, that He keeps His promises, and that we live and we walk in His character and in His promises. That's certainty about God's character, God's person, and God's promises. But faith does not sit and hold the promises of God like a couch potato and hope for the best. Faith gets up. Faith is active. Faith runs after what it's pursuing. It's like a runner running a race. They've got that goal on the other end of it. They are focused on the finish line. And so they don't just believe in racing and talk about racing and talk about how great it would be to run a race. They don't just sit and admire other runners for how well they run. If you really believe in running, if you believe in crossing the finish line, then you get up and you get in the race and you run it. Now, as you run it, you start breaking out in a sweat and it gets tough. And sometimes you have to look for what they call that, you know, second breath to hit you, to get you through. But you stay with it and you stay after it because you are trying to finish it and you are consumed with what the goal is. That's the way faith is. Faith does not just sit back and say, well, I believe the following things and I'm happy and satisfied that I believe the following things. Faith says, I'm going to get up and do something because I believe I'm going to run after Jesus. I'm going to seek after Him. I don't want to just know the promises of God. I want to experience firsthand the fulfillment of the promises of God in my life. That is the way faith operates. And we're going to look today and we're going to see how faith in action, how faith yearns and what that yearning of faith looks like in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, if you turn with me there to Hebrews chapter 11. In AD 64, to give you some background to this passage of Scripture and to the book of Hebrews itself, Christians began in the Roman Empire to undergo the most severe persecution they had known up to that point under a guy by the name of Nero. It was called the Neronian Persecution. And Nero was vicious in the way that he began to persecute Christians. He had to blame what at that time were the declining fortunes of the Roman Empire on somebody. And the Christians made the easiest scapegoat to blame it on. So he began to persecute them as he placed blame on them. For believers, it became a time of fear and of the erosion of their faith. We like to think that believers were constantly strengthened in their faith and growing in their faith, but actually as they began to undergo such a severe persecution, their faith went from being strong and bold to becoming timid. Their discipleship began to take on a costly demand. If you said that you were a Christian, there was a good chance that your business was going to be boycotted. If you were known as a follower of Jesus Christ, there was a good chance you would be arrested, you'd be thrown in jail, and you or your family might lose their lives. And so Christians were really struggling with, do we hold to the faith? Because there's such a cost that is attached to holding to the faith. And many were being tempted to give up their faith. And so in the midst of this, the writer of Hebrews writes this book 
to encourage them and to challenge them to stay at it and to stay with it. In other words, the finish line of this race that you're running may be a ways down the road, but you need to stay in the race. And the way you stay in the race is you don't focus on how hot it is. You don't focus on how much you're sweating. You don't focus on how much your body is screaming out to you to stop. You don't even focus on the crowd that is around you. You keep yourself focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. I led a basketball program in ministry when I was in Chesapeake, and with my 16 to 18-year-old guys in particular, I used to notice when we would play on Tuesday nights over at the Cuffey Center. It was nine times out of ten a hostile crowd that we were playing uh, in the atmosphere of. And those guys invariably would start listening to the kids that were in and the people that were in the bleachers. And I used to tell them, I said, if you start listening to the crowd that's in the bleachers, you're going to get mad and you're going to get frustrated. If they started listening to each other, they would start getting mad and frustrated, particularly when one guy would foul up and they would get all ticked off with him because he screwed up, etc. I said, listen to the coach and listen only to the coach. Stay focused on what the coach is telling you and you'll win the game. But you get distracted and you've had it. And the problem that folks were having in Rome and around Rome, these believers, is that they were listening to everybody but their coach. They were listening to everybody but Jesus. They were focusing everywhere else. And so what he does here in the 11th chapter is he takes the heroes of the Old Testament and he holds them up and he says, I want you to look at these heroes of the Old Testament because they kept their focus, they finished the race, and they finished it well. And he's going to be looking here in particular at Abraham. Now, Abraham was a unique guy because at 75 years of age is when he heard the call of God to leave Ur of the Chaldees, which is a beautiful, wonderful city, a lot of education, uh, business, etc. Leave Ur, walk out in the Middle Eastern desert and start life all over again and go to a place God said that I'm not going to tell you where it is. You'll know when you get there. I will just show you one step at a time. And so Abraham did that. It says later that the reason that he packed his bags up, packed his family up, and they moved out of Ur of the Chaldees, and they moved into what we know as southern Iraq, and then into the larger Middle Eastern area, and lived in tents for years and years and years with a son that he eventually had in Isaac, and then with a grandson Jacob. The reason he did that was because he, it says, and we saw this last week, he was looking for a city that had foundations. Now, the reason that was significant is because he lived in a tent, and the foundations of his tent were sand. And so he says, this city's got foundations, and the builder and the designer of this city is God. In other words, what Abraham did is every morning when he got up, he looked at his tent and set that in order. He walked out the door of his tent and saw, guess what, surprise, surprise, more desert in front of him. But then he looked beyond the desert and he looked beyond this life and he looked to heaven and he said, someday I'm going to end up there. That's what God's got for me and the fulfillment of his promises for me. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to begin with verse 13. This is speaking of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, the things promised. Notice that sentence, not having received the things promised, but having seen them. Notice the verbs, having seen them and greeted them from afar. 
And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, in this case Ur, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Think about that. God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He has prepared for them a city. He has prepared for them a city. Faith yearns. Faith is active. And in that action of yearning, it yearns for what it sees but does not have. Faith yearns for what we see, but we don't have it yet. Verse 13. These all died in faith. That is Abraham, his wife Sarah, Isaac, his son, Jacob. Now the translation there, they all died in faith. The preposition there, in, could be translated, they all died according to faith. The idea is essentially this. If you had looked at the lives of Abraham, Sarah, Esau, excuse me, Isaac, Jacob, you would have said that the defining characteristic of their life was faith. If you had opportunity to live in a tent next door to them, if you had watched them as they moved through the Middle Eastern desert there, if you'd watched them day in and day out facing tough circumstances, facing that hot Middle Eastern sun and the wind and the sand blowing in their face day by day, you would have said, you know, those folks live by faith. They talk about the Lord. They stay focused on the Lord. They depend on the Lord. They are not focused on the sand or the sun or the hot wind or discouragement. They are focused on the Lord God. They are depending on Him, they are trusted in Him, and they are happy in Him. I don't know how Abraham gets up every day and gets a smile on his face, but he tells me that the Lord is putting a smile on his face, and the Lord keeps a smile on his face. I don't know how Sarah believes in a husband who says God's going to give us a land, but he doesn't tell me where that land's going to be, but she says she's trusted Him because he trusts in the Lord, and together as a couple they are trusted in the Lord. Isaac tells me he grows up, has grown up every day watching his parents pray every day and seek the Lord every day and trust in God every day. And somehow or another, every day, we manage to have food to cook and food to eat and water to drink. And you know, we just enjoy being with each other. We don't have to have our tent full of a whole lot of stuff because it's a full of the Lord. And so God's gotten us by. And then Isaac said, I shared the same thing with my son Jacob as he was growing up. They grew up and they lived according to faith. And it says that they died the same way they lived. They died trusting in the Lord. Folks, most people die the way they live. We used to have all these big discussions about deathbed conversions. I remember I had a pastor years ago when I was in college. He says people die the way they live. And that is, if we trust the Lord and we live according to our faith, trusting Him, then when the time comes the Lord calls us on to glory, we die in our faith. 
Faith carries us over. Trusted in the Lord, knowing His presence. Years ago, and some of you may know this family because uh, this lady uh, came from Franklin County. I pastored in Powhatan, Virginia at Red Lane Baptist Church years ago. And a lady in our congregation there known as Margie Altice. And uh, Margie was very active in our church, went on mission trips with us. Uh, she was in her senior years when I came there, and she started going on mission trips with us. And her calling was washing team T-shirts every night. And it takes special grace to take team T-shirts every night that are saturated in sweat and, and wash those things with the way they smell. But that was her ministry. And she was just this beautiful Christian presence in our church, lovely spirit, etc., and uh, Margie began to get very weak, couldn't figure out why she was losing energy. They discovered she had colon cancer. They couldn't really do much for her. And uh, we went and visited with her numerous times as she was getting ready to make her heavenly journey. And my wife was sharing me, with me this week on one of those visits. She, uh, she told Helen, she said, you know, she said, all of my family is so sad because I'm leaving here. And I'm getting ready to go to a party. I wish they could be as happy as I am. I wish they could be as happy as I am because I'm getting ready to go to a party. She was dying according to faith. And she knew the Lord was as powerful on the other side as this side. And he had it all taken care of. That was the idea of them living that life and then dying according to their faith. They were yearning for faith because faith takes us... Enables us to live beyond this life. They were caught up in something far greater than this life. But folks, let me say this to you. One of the reasons that we tend to struggle with faith and with keeping an eye on what God's got for us way down the road is we are so conditioned by our culture to live right now and to not be able to see past the next 24 seconds let alone the next 24 years or into eternity. And our culture has so conditioned us as Christians to think that all the promises of God have to be fulfilled right now in our lives. So if God's not answering every prayer between the time I pray and the time I get out of church, something's wrong with God. And if God doesn't get the prayers answered within the next two years or the next two minutes or the next two hours, then what's going wrong with God? Or if prayer's not working, etc., etc. God fulfills the promises of His Word, but He fulfills them on His schedule, not on ours. And that is so key to understand. We cannot manipulate God into when He is going to fulfill promises. And faith says, I'm looking forward to what God's doing, but I recognize that I'm not just living in this moment, and I'm not just living for this moment, and I'm not just living in this era. Aren't you glad that as followers of Jesus, we don't live just for what's on this earth? We don't live just for this era. We are living with an eye on something beyond that. But we are so conditioned to just live in the moment. And what these folks teach us is to live beyond the moment, beyond the era in which we are living, and live for that which He is doing because God is at work on an eternal basis and scale, not just in the moment. If you just live for the moment and we are demanding that God answers in all of His promises and comes through with everything right now in my lifetime, you're going to end up getting burned out and angry with God, I can guarantee you. We'll get burned out and angry with God every time. Because God moves on His schedule, not on ours. Now, there are three phases of faith 
that he speaks of here, beginning in verse 13. Three phases of faith, and I want you to see this, and I'm going to use this stepladder here to demonstrate them, because as we take each step or each phase, we get closer and we get higher in the faith walk that we are in, closer to the Lord, and our faith gets stronger. First of all, in verse 13, you will notice that it says here, these all died not having received the things promised. In other words, when they died, they did not, had not received all the promises of God. God had promised them many things, but they had not seen the fulfillment of all these things, not having received the things promised. But notice what he says, first step of faith, but having seen them. Now, what in the world does that mean? These folks die, and they have not seen the promises of God fulfilled in their life. So does that mean that God did not fulfill the promises he made to them? He was a promise breaker, not a promise keeper. It says that they didn't receive them, but they've seen them. And what does it mean to not receive a promise, but you see it? You know it's going to happen, even though it hasn't come true yet. It hasn't been fulfilled. But let's look at how that happened in Abraham's life. First of all, God told him, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you land. And then God took him on this long journey to get to the land. And when he got to that land, it was basically a big desert with a whole lot of rocks. Not something you jump up and down about. And when he got there, God said, you don't even own one foot of it. You don't even own as much of it as what space your foot takes up. So I'm going to give you a land, but you're really not going to possess it on this side of heaven long. But I'm going to also give you an eternal land. A heavenly land. So you're not living for just this chunk of sand that you're on. What you're really living for is what I'm going to give you on the other side in heaven. That is the land that I am giving you. Now folks, when we see the promises of God in terms of what He gives us, if we live for what is just in this life, we are in sad shape. We've got to train ourselves and learn to live for what He's going to give us in eternity over on the other side. Corey Ten Boom, whose family was tremendously persecuted by the Nazis during the Second War, used to tell people, don't you cling to the things of this earth tightly because it really hurts when God starts prying it out of your hands. Don't cling to the things of this earth tightly because it really hurts when God starts prying it out of your hands. So that's the first thing God told him. Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, but the land I'm really giving you is on the other side of this life. Number two. I'm going to give you a posterity. At the time God made the promise to Abraham and he didn't even have one child. Then God gave him a child. That was Isaac. Now God had taken Abraham and laid him down and said, you look at the sand around you, that's how great your posterity is going to be. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Look up at the sky, see the stars, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And then God gives him one son. If I'd have been Abraham and I'd said, God, you told me you're going to give me thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of descendants, it looked like you could at least start out with twins <laughs> or triplets. 
And my wife gets pregnant and it's only one kid and I'm supposed to have all these descendants out of one child? Really? (laughs) But God began to multiply through time. Abraham didn't live this side to see all the multiplication. But again, God wasn't just limited to that because there were going to be spiritual descendants. Every person who's ever trusted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior is a descendant. Spiritual descendant of Abraham. God answers prayer and fulfills his promises often in ways that you and I would never anticipate. He told him he would give him a great name, which he eventually had. And then his greatest promise of all, the Messiah, would come through him. And that was a promise that he had to look way into the future, thousands of years, and trust God for. That the Messiah would come through his line. So number one, the first phase of faith is seeing the promises. We see what God's going to do. And we're looking way out there by faith at what he's promised he's going to give. Second phase, second step of faith is embracing the promises of God. He says he's seen them and then it says he's greeted them from afar. This idea of greeting is faith seizes upon what God reveals And lives in anticipation of it. In other words, we see what God's promised and we begin to live in anticipation of what he is going to do. It's really an interesting Hebrew word there. The the root of the word literally means to salute. When you salute someone, what are you doing? You're recognizing their rank. You're recognizing their value. You're recognizing your relationship. You're recognizing that you're on the same team with each other. And it's this idea that as God said, Abraham, I'm going to do this. And Abraham, I'm going to do this. And a lot of what I'm going to do, Abraham, you're not going to live to see it. You've got to trust me over on the other side. And you've got to trust me for an eternal plan. That Abraham looked at God and he saluted God. He said, I trust you, God. I believe you're going to do it, God. I'm going to live my life in anticipation, God. Not of what happens just today, but what will happen tomorrow and a decade from now and beyond my lifetime, God. I'm saluting you, Lord, in what you're going to do. Jesus taught us to do the same thing in what we call the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, your kingdom come, I am essentially saying, Lord, I am waiting, I am yearning, I am asking for, and I am looking for your kingdom kingdom to come, for your kingdom to come right now, for your rule and your reign to be known in my life right now. I am asking for your kingdom, your rule and your reign to come and to be known in the circumstances and situations that are around me. And I'm going to do the same thing, Lord, with communities. When we walk into a community to do ministry in that community, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask and I'm going to trust you for your kingdom to be known in that community, for your rule, for your reign to be known in that community. Many of you... Some of you have been with us on shrimp, and we've gone into a neighborhood called Digstown. And we've ministered there the last few summers. And a number of years ago, when we were looking to go into that neighborhood to do ministry, there had been quite a bit of violence in that neighborhood. And we, this was back when I was pastoring in South Norfolk, and we literally thought about not going into that community that particular summer because of violence that had been there, particularly on July 4th weekend and on uh, Memorial Day weekend. But we decided to go in there. But we would really begin to pray over that neighborhood. 
and to claim that neighborhood for Jesus and to pray for his kingdom to come in that neighborhood. And I remember standing out in that neighborhood that had been known for fear a few weeks earlier and listening to kids singing the Bible school songs about Jesus. Your kingdom come. Jesus, you claim this neighborhood for yourself. We want to know your kingdom coming here. Third step of faith. You see it, number one. You embrace it, number two. Number three, claim it. The idea here when he says that they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth is the idea that they claimed heaven as their homeland. They welcomed it. They accepted it. And they said, you know, it's like a mountain on the horizon. I'm not there yet, but I see it. And I am pressing in that direction. And that is where I'm going to end up. And it is going to be good because God said it was going to be good. And so I'm looking at the horizon because the horizon is what God has in store for me. And I am claiming it. That is that idea of claiming. In verse 13, he says that basically, when we saw this last week, we live as nomads. In other words, he says you're going to be strangers and you're going to be exiles on this earth. Don't get comfortable on this earth. Don't settle into this earth. Don't take on the values of this earth. Don't identify with this world. Don't take on the culture of this world because you are a stranger and you're an exile. You are countercultural to what's going on in this world. Live as a stranger and as an exile. Now, part of that means suffering. I hate to bring it up, but part of it means suffering. When Jesus came to this earth, he lived countercultural. When Jesus came, he was a stranger and he was an exile. If I'm really going to follow Jesus, then I'm going to be countercultural because my leader is countercultural. I am not going to mix on with the culture of this world because he does not mix well with the culture of this world. He was a stranger. He was an exile. But Jesus didn't avoid suffering, and he ran right through it. Now, it's one thing to run into it. It's something else to run through it. Jesus did not run into suffering. He ran through suffering. And what I mean by that is this. When Jesus saw suffering... He didn't try to avoid it. He didn't run away from it. He ran to it, but he ran through it. It did not stop him. It did not conquer him. It did not define him. Rather, he ran through it. What did he do at the cross? He ran to the cross. He didn't try to run around the cross, but he ran through the cross. Because when he ran through the cross, the cross did not define him. The suffering did not defeat him because he ran through the cross to run to the tomb, to run out of the tomb three days later. You see, what defined Jesus was ultimately not the suffering, but resurrection and victory. If you and I try to avoid suffering for him, we will also avoid resurrection and victory. If we run through the suffering with him, then we will run into resurrection victory. We live as nomads, but we live in resurrection victory. Notice what he says in verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
That is a fascinating statement. Saying if Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob had said, you know, it was mighty nice back in Ur. We had plenty of food, nice house, friends, opportunities in business, education. Man, we had it going our way, and we left that. But he said, if they had been, notice the verb there, thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, if their mind, it's a fascinating Hebrew construct here, it is the idea of focusing your mind on something, of locking in on something. And what he's saying here is if, if Abraham and Sarah had, had started getting up in the mornings and talking about Ur and how great Ur was, and that's what had been their, their breakfast conversation over their coffee and toast in the morning. And then at lunchtime when they came back, they said, you know, I'm getting sick of this desert. Ur looks so nice back there. And they talked a little bit more about Ur. And at dinner time, that would have been on their thought. And they'd gone to bed at nighttime and dreamed about Ur. Man, let's talk about go back to Ur. And as Isaac came along, they talked about how wonderful things were with Ur. And they just kept bringing Ur up. And their mind began to turn and to be focused. What would they have done? They had to collapse the tent and move back to Ur. Because that's where their mind had been. But they got up every morning and they talked about the Lord. And they talked about what God had for them. And they talked about what God was showing them about the land he was taking to them about heaven. And they said, you know, Earl was nice, but it didn't hold anything compared to the call of God and the will of God and the plan of God and the land of God. Where are we focusing our minds? Is it on this life or what he's got for us on the other side? Is it on what we get so angry about and we get so frustrated with in this life? Or is it on Jesus and who he is and what he has for us? Because you see, wherever my mind is focused and that's where I'm headed, that's where I'm going into, wherever my mental radar is locked in on, that's where I'm headed. And he said they were locked in on something other than where they had come from. The reason we backslide and we get away from the Lord and we go back to the same junk that Jesus just delivered us out of is because that's what we get focused on. That's what occupies our mind. The reason we get miserable is because we are focused on miserable stuff. And let's be honest, a whole lot of the miserable stuff that we are focused on Rides on the sides of our pockets in our iPhones and on social media. The focus is the issue. Focusing on Him. I want us to look quickly at two verses of Scripture. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. But our citizenship is where? In heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is my ultimate citizenship? Not on this earth, not on this side. It is in heaven. And I am awaiting what? A Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day we get up, I have to remind myself, my citizenship is in heaven, and I am waiting the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Whether he comes today, comes tomorrow, comes 10 years from now, comes 1,000 years from now, the timing of the second coming does not depend on my expectation, excitement of anticipating that he is coming again. And I am living my life like Jesus is coming again. I am living my life in anticipation. Folks, the greatest reality that we have to anticipate is that Jesus is coming again. It's not the second wave of the virus. It's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that we live and we wait for. Some of us are more excited about whatever the next disaster is going to be than the next blessing that's coming in His second coming. Next verse. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens or exiles. But who are you? What's your identity? You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Abraham said, I'm a a stranger and I'm an exile on this earth. But I'm not a stranger or an exile in heaven. We are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now notice verse 16. writer here says, God looked at Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob. And he says, I'm not ashamed to be called their God. In fact, God identifies himself over and over again in the Old Testament as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because he was not ashamed of. God looked down at, at those guys and he said, you know, they love me, they walked with me, they believe my word, and I am not ashamed of them. I claim them, I identify with them. I don't know how to stress this strong enough, but the awesome, awesome privilege of God looking at us and calling our name and saying, I'm not ashamed of them. They believed me. They trusted me. They walked with me. I know we put so much emphasis on the importance of confessing sin and God restoring us, and that is true. But folks, what we really need to live for is not that we confess sin and God forgives us as wonderful as that is, but that we walk so much and focus on Jesus that He's not having to constantly clean us up, but He can look at us and say, I'm not ashamed of them. Because of how they're walking with me. Verse 16. He says he has prepared for them. A city. Can you imagine what heaven's going to be like. When God. Prepares it. For us. Someone observed years ago. He created this world in seven days. He's been working on heaven for thousands of years. Can you imagine. What it is going to be like. Henry Morrison was a missionary in Africa for 40 years. And he returned to New York City at the conclusion of those 40 years of missionary work. And he happened to be on the same ship as he came in to New York with the President of the United States at that time, Theodore Roosevelt, who was widely popular. As they entered... New York Harbor, President Theodore Roosevelt 
was greeted by a huge fanfare. People cheering and extremely excited that he had arrived in New York Harbor. And Morrison stood there and no one recognized him. No one said a word. No fanfare for him. And Morrison thought, I've spent four decades of my life serving the Lord in Africa. And nobody is saying one thing about me coming here and coming home. They are all cheering for the president. And deep inside his spirit, Henry Morrison heard a small voice that said, Henry, you're not home yet. Henry, you're not home yet. We live with a faith, if we choose to, that yearns for Jesus and yearns for heaven. And we don't get but so overcome in this earth and on this, in this world because we're not home yet. We are not home yet. And we don't get to but so comfortable because we're not home yet. Faith yearns runs after him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. And Jesus, we ask that you would help to strengthen our faith so that Jesus, we focus on you. And God, when we get frustrated and disappointed, and worn out, even exasperated with life this side of heaven. When we get lonely, when we feel like we're not recognized for what we do, when there seems to be no end to the disappointments, Lord, remind us that you don't fulfill all your promises in 24-hour segments like we tend to live, and that we are not home yet. We are strangers, we are exiles, and we are looking for that city that you are preparing for us. Jesus, help us to keep running this race focused exclusively on you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to give you a moment in silent prayer. And let the Holy Spirit, if he needs to, refocus you on Jesus. Off of the problems, off of the issues, and just on Jesus. And if you're listening and you need to focus on Jesus and ask him to be your Lord and to be your Savior. Then just simply say to him, Lord Jesus, I'm going to focus on you. I'm going to yearn for you. Jesus, I'm going to run with you and after.